If you have your Bibles, open them up to Daniel chapter 1. Um, we're also going to do a quick little stint in Daniel chapter 9. We're also going to do a quick stint in Jeremiah 29. So if you want to put fingers in Daniel 9, Jeremiah 29, we're going to do a little bit of page turning today, but I want to connect some dots for you. Last week, uh, we compared the organizational pattern of Luke's gospel to his early church biography of Acts, uh, specifically to note the literary purposes of how he ends Acts. That's just a really fancy way of saying Luke leaves his work of Acts intentionally open-ended and he ends it with the word unhindered. After he's given you a million reasons why the gospel should be hindered, he says it's unhindered. And what he's doing, we talked about last week, is he's tying the reader back to the resurrection and the ending of his gospel and simultaneously inviting them to participate in the very same story, trusting that no matter how bleak the situation may seem or look, absolutely nothing hinders the movement and the gospel that God has set forth. Nothing hinders it. It is unhinderable. So we ended last week by uh, trying to put on this global perspective of Christendom, uh, meaning we were understanding that this movement that we call Christianity, people that choose to deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow Jesus, while statistically dwindling in America, is booming across the globe. That's where we ended. And by the way, if you're curious about that, we'll have that up on our podcast tomorrow and you can go back and listen to it there or go back and catch that on, on YouTube. But this last week, I've been doing a lot of thinking on that, and, and I'm sorry, this is just the stage of life I'm in, and so usually whatever I'm thinking about in the week just kind of leaks out of me from the pulpit. It's just kind of the natural course of things, I think. Um, but I've spent a lot of time uh, in the last few weeks, especially, like I said last week, uh, you know, up late at night rocking my son or, or looking at him, and my brain just runs, and it does this thing that I'm sure you parents are aware of that I was never, never aware of until this moment. Where, where I'm thinking about what is the world going to look like as Griffin grows up? What's it going to look like when he's seven, eight years old? What type of world is he going to transition into adulthood in when he starts to turn 18? What type of universities are going to be there if he chooses to go off to college? And what is that going to look like? And so I've been thinking a lot about what has the world looked like just in the past 20 years as things have seemingly started to change. Because the reality is, while it's really good to keep in the forefront of our minds this reality that the world across the globe is booming into Christianity and tons of people in Africa and Asia are coming to faith, the reality is, is I'm not going to raise Griffin alongside believers in Africa. Rather, I'm going to be raising my son, what seems to be along unbelievers, right here in America. And while it will do both him and me good to constantly keep this reminder of reality in our mind that the gospel cannot be hindered, it doesn't change the reality that it seems like he's growing up in. Because for the last 10 years, things seem to be changing. Really, the last 20 years, things to seem to be changing. One of the things that my mom likes to do to me very often is she likes to play this game where she'll call me and she'll say, hey, do you remember so-and-so? And my answer is usually no, mom, I don't remember so-and-so. She'll call me, hey, do you, do you remember Evan? Uh, mom, I don't know who Evan is. You know Evan, you went to high school with him. You know, he hung out with a lot of the baseball guys. He, he worked at PacSun for a while. And mom, I never went into PacSun. I, I don't know who you're talking about. You know Evan, he was the guy that his little brother got in the ATV accident. They had to life flight him to Vanderbilt, but he's fine now. I saw him in Walmart the other day. He just walks with a limp, but he's okay. And usually what I'll do at this point is I'll look at my wife and I'll be like, 
Yeah, what's going on? Well, he and his wife just had twins. Cool, thanks. <laughs> like, that's the conversation. I don't know if you guys have hit that stage of life where you have those types of conversations with your mom yet, but if not, they come. Um, I just wasn't ready for them, you know. Do you remember so-and-so? But here's the, the trend I've noticed a little bit more recently is now there's been a couple times that she's called me and she'll say, hey, do you remember so-and-so? And the answer is yes, because that so-and-so is actually not just some acquaintance in high school that I should know about, but it's actually someone I went to high school with and they actually went to church with us and we grew up going to vacation Bible school together. And so recently I got a call about one of those friends. And my mom said, hey, he and his wife are having a baby, but recently they went to his parents that also go to church where, where my mom and I grew up and informed his parents that uh, they will not in any capacity allow their newborn daughter to go to church because they do not want to impose any belief system on her and want to make sure that they let her choose her own way of life. And understand, this is not some progressive West Coast city. This is people my age who grew up in the heart of the Bible Belt that that went to church at least somewhat regularly growing up, attended vacation Bible school, went on church camps with me, but have now chosen to write off their faith, not just write off their faith as a means of appeasing their parents and going just on Christmas and Easter, but have instead pushed off their faith entirely to the point that they now believe actually allowing their children to even attend church with their grandparents is not just weird, it's a downright dangerous idea. So the perks of cute Easter pictures aren't even worth it anymore because it's outright dangerous dangerous for their daughter to view the world that way. And it seems like a far off thing. And it seems when we're kind of here in the isolation of Portales to not be all that close to us. But I think if anyone were to look up just driving around this town, you would still get this feeling that there's some sort of tone shift happening. There's something kind of editing in culture around us. Now, let me preface all this by, by saying, please, 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 I beg you, do, do not hear any of this as a tone of panic or a tone of anger or a tone of antagonism. I think sometimes we as Christians do a really poor job uh, by, by looking at the outside world and then getting mad or upset when they don't act like believers. Um, And I would just say, number one, Jesus never looked at an unbeliever with anger because they acted like an unbeliever. That's never the heart of Jesus. Um, And number two, it should never drive us to outrage. It should always drive us to desperation and prayer and love like that's. So please hear me as I get into this, not being antagonistic or angry or anything like that. But just last month, um, a lady that I was in Leadership Portales with, uh, that we worked together over the last year, kind of doing stuff in the community, uh, Laura Ra- uh, White is her name. She's the director of the ENMU Library. She wrote an op-ed for the Eastern New Mexico paper uh, titled Pride, A Place for All in Eastern New Mexico, where she mentions that according to a 2019 Gallup poll, about 5% of New Mexicans over 18 identify in the LGBTQ crowd. And then she goes on to say that in 2021, according to the New Mexico Youth and Risk Resilience Survey for high schoolers in Roosevelt County, it puts that statistic at 25% of high schoolers identifying as LGBTQ. That's in our community, high schoolers. Now, I will say, I went and I looked up that statistic in that study, and I feel like it is incredibly inaccurate given the source they pulled from. They only interviewed like 168 students in all of Roosevelt County. I just don't think it has really great legs to stand on personally. 
uh, just from a statistical point of view. But that being said, there was an op-ed in our local newspaper quoting that our local high school sets at about a one in every four high schoolers identifying as LGBTQ. And again, don't hear me being outraged or angry. I'm not trying to get you all up and riled up. We got to That's not my point. My point in saying all of that is simply this. The portalis that we are trying to reach and minister in today is vastly different than the portalis most of you grew up in. If you grew up here, the likeliness is the current portalis that we live in and we go to school in and we go to work and we go shopping in and we go to restaurants in is vastly different than the portalis many of you grew up in. And I think most of you would nod an affirmation to that. It's not that hard to look around and see. And so with that, I have to come to the realization that the portalis my son is going to grow up in will look vastly different than this town has ever looked. And while there's still a lot to celebrate and thank God for because he's still in control and I think there's some wonderfully good things about this town we call home, there is a notable shift in the atmosphere. Especially given the heavier influx of influence and media and all of that. But here's the thing. Although it might feel somewhat new to us, there are plenty of sociologists and anthropologists and even Christian anthropologists and thinkers that have begun to note this shift in the larger culture already. That, that they've now identified America and the Western world as a whole, that, that we are no longer what we would call a Christian culture, but we are now what most people refer to as a post-Christian culture. That, that it's not uh, paganistic necessarily, but we are no longer Christian. We are now post-Christian. We have moved outside of that. In fact, I came across this work from a pastor in New York City. His name's John Tyson, so you can look it up if you're interested in this. But he makes uh, some notes about three major cultural shifts in our current cultural moment, and I think these three just hit it really well. So I wanted to list these off because I think it's really interesting, and then we'll dive into the text from there. Number one, he says that we as Christians have now shifted or are starting to shift from a majority to a minority. So according to a 2023 statistic, the number of Protestants in America has officially dipped below the 50% marker. For the very first time, it's sitting around 48.9%. Um, And that's still, you know, relatively high, especially when you factor in Catholicism and other forms of Christianity. It still puts America somewhere in the realm of 70 percent. But if you were to take that statistic and break it down by age range and you were to look at who identifies as Protestant Christians, that's kind of where the camp we live is. And you were to limit that to the surveys of 18 to 25 year old, that statistic drops from 48.9 percent all the way down to 20 percent. And if you extrapolate that out a bit more, because we know that just checking that you're a Christian in a box on a survey doesn't make you a Christian. That's not what determines if someone is or is not a Christian. Far more likely, that's a high number as compared to those who actually take their faith seriously and deny themselves, pick up the cross and follow Jesus. One estimate I read suggested that if you were to look at a college class of about 100 students, so if you were to go to Eastern and does Eastern have 100 students in any of their classes? I'm not sure. We'll say yes. If you were to go to Eastern and see a basic English class of 100 students, only about four to five might be serious about following Jesus in their faith. To be under 30 and to be a Jesus follower is to be an endangered species. So welcome, endangered species who are here today. We're very grateful that you're here. And again, that's not just a statistic. That's friends I went to high school with. 
That's people who sat next to me singing vacation Bible school songs as a kid. That's people with names and faces and careers and are starting to have families. And now I've just walked away from this thing we call church altogether. And I imagine many of you have similar experiences. If it's not sons or grandsons or daughters or granddaughters, it's at least family acquaintances and friends that you may have known. And so he says that we're shifting now from the majority to the minority. And then he says we're also shifting from the center to the fringe. That historically, no matter where you fall in the was America founded as a Christian nation debate, it's undeniable that 250 years ago, Christianity stood as the, at the center of cultural influence. Most every political leader were Christians, or at least some version of deist, heavily influenced by the morality of the Bible. All of the best higher learning institutions were founded by churches. Um, Harvard was founded in the late 1600s or mid-1600s by the Congregationalist Church, which is, which is a denomination that largely just doesn't exist anymore. But it was founded in Harvard. They founded Harvard. And then about 65 years after that, the congregation split. The denomination split. And so they started another university to correct the ministers being trained at Harvard. The new university they started was called Yale. So Harvard, Yale, Uh, my favorite university, my team, the University of Tennessee was founded by Presbyterians. Baptists founded George Washington University in Wake Forest. And that list goes way further than just that. Christians and Christian leaders were the most influential people. It's even true for this church's history. If you're to go back and trace through one of the starting and early pastors of this church was a guy named Dr. Aldrich. Dr. Aldridge was one of the first pastors here in the early 1900s, and he was a key leader in Portales. In fact, he was one that was known most for helping Portales uh, turn from a wild west town to an actual kind of township. He ran off the brothels and the saloons and all of that that marked this as the wild west and started up the local newspaper and got all that launched. That's the pastor of First Baptist Church and his influence on Portales as a town. And you look at that level of influence Versus the level of influence that I have on a town like this. Because most people, if I were honest, in Portales today don't really care that I'm the pastor of First Baptist. In fact, most of the time when I'm in the hospital and the, the nurse asks me as we're sitting there with our newborn son and she says, what do you do? And I go, I'm the pastor of First Baptist in Portales. And they go, oh, I live in Portales. Where is that church? It's the yellow brick church. I don't think I've ever seen it before. You drive past it every day coming to the hospital. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, do you, do you see the difference? We've moved from a central point of power to the fringes. And it seems like now we're being regarded as weird or outdated or irrelevant at best. And maybe more backwards, dangerous and an extremist at worst. Which brings me to his third point, which says we're shifting from a well-respected group to a disrespected group. That Christian morality has rapidly shifted from moral high ground to moral low ground. Because even when I was in high school, people who disagreed with me about what I believed in my faith, generally their response to me was something along the lines of, man, it's awesome that you can hold to that type of morality and teaching. I just can't commit to something like that. But now if at any point you dare suggest any such thing as universal morality or a clear black and white terms of good and wrong, right and wrong, bad, Uh, good and evil, then you're written off as angry or intolerant or a bigot where tolerance is the highest virtue to be known, even if you do that kindly and respectfully. So I say all of that. I know this feels more like a lecture and we're going to get into the text, but I say all of that just to say this. It used to be in America that if you were a follower of Jesus, you were in the majority, you were pretty well in power and you were pretty well thought of. 
Now, depending on where you live, things are either totally flipped or seemingly beginning to flip so that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are probably in the minority and a sincere follower of Jesus, not just a cultural follower of Jesus. You've probably been moved to the fringe and at best you're thought of as weird, at worst you're thought of as dangerous. So does the Bible have anything to say about this style, this position of life? And I think it does. The key word that the Bible uses for this is the word exile. It's a theme really throughout the entire scriptures. It starts in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. But it traces all the way through to the New Testament, especially in books like 1 Peter. Because over and over again, 1 Peter is going to say things like uh, chapter 1, verse 1. To those of you chosen living as exiles dispersed abroad. 1 Peter 1, 17. You are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. 1 Peter 2.11, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. This idea of living as Christians in a culture that doesn't necessarily uphold the realities of what we believe is not a new thing. It's something that the church has thrived in for 2,000 years now. But for us, there was no hostile takeover, at least no one event in the night that we can look to and say, that's the night everything changed. But make no mistake, things have changed. And if you're like me, you might very well feel a little bit disoriented. But still, this is not even close to what happened to Daniel in Daniel chapter one. This is the story I want to look at over the next few weeks as we open this question of how do we live in a world that may or may not align with the things that we hold to be true. And I think Daniel gives us a very clear representation of that. Daniel chapter one, verse one, it says this. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them out of the land. Uh, carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered uh, Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, good-looking, good looking, suitable for instruction and all of wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving uh, the king's palace. And he was to teach them the, Chal- the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions uh, from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. And they were to be trained for three years. At the end of that time, they were to attend to the king. Among them from the Judeites were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But the chief eunuch gave them names. He gave the name Belshazzar to the name Daniel and Shadrach to Hananiah and Meshach to Mishael and Abednego to Azariah. And if you jump down to verse 17... And God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. And Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. And at the end of the time that the king said to present them to the chief eunuch, presented them to Nebuchadnezzar, the king interviewed them. And among them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, or Azariah. So they began to attend to the king. And every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. And Daniel remained there for the first year of King Cyrus. Now, just so you have an idea, that first year of King Cyrus marks Daniel's time span between Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus between 70 and 80 years. Daniel grows up in a place 
that's not his hometown, in a culture that is not his home culture and is totally opposed to all of that, for 70 to 80 years. And he does something incredible with it. God actually does something through this period of exile through Daniel. So, so what I want you just to try to do with me for the next few minutes is see if you can envision yourself, imagine yourself in Daniel's shoes. Just imagine with me, you're a young Jewish child in the royal family, somewhere 13 to 15 years old. And being in that royal family, you're smart, you're affluent, you're well-trained in the Torah. You have been given every means and opportunity for education. And then one night you awake to the city ablaze. And these men burst down your door with swords drawn, pointed at you, speaking a language that you really can't make much sense of. And they poke you with the sword until you go and you're shackled to these other young people about your age. They throw you in these shackles and they drag you and these other young teenagers away from your parents, your family, your home to the capital of their nation, Babylon. Now, for us, Babylon doesn't have the exact same meaning as it would to a biblical perspective, because the term Babylon has actually been all over the Bible up until this point. Babylon is not just the name of some nasty, power-hungry foreign nation. It is the biblical archetype that represents hostility towards God. From Genesis 10 and 11, Babylon is marked as the place that the people are totally set against Yahweh. They are pagan inside and out. Sexual immorality is rampant. It is not just semi-Jewish. It is not post-Jewish. It is full-fledged, at its core, anti-Jewish and anti-the Jewish God. And here you are, shackled away, dragged to be thrown into this three-year indoctrination program. I think it has to be somewhat like universities today. I'm I'm just joking. That's a joke. You're thrown into this three-year indoctrination program, a program socially designed to erase your faith in Yahweh and erase your identity as a member of the Jewish community and assimilate you into the Babylonian way of life. I mean, part of the process is literally taking away their Jewish names and giving them Babylonian names. When we tell the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's not actually their names. That's the names that Babylon gave to them. And if there was ever this this parallel, it's this environment that's a high pressure environment that's designed to convince Daniel and his friends to just act like everyone else acts, talk like everyone else talks, to just embrace what it means to be normal. And I don't know about you, but I definitely feel some of that similarities leaking into where we are today. Now, I absolutely recognize it is nowhere to that degree. And I I acknowledge that. I understand that. But it does feel like there's this ever-pressing pressure to be redundant. That just says, just act like everyone else acts. Just talk like everyone else talks. Just believe what everyone else believes. Just be normal. And what I want to do over the next few weeks is say, what made Daniel not normal? What made him able to stand out as ten times the man anyone else lived to be. But for today, I just want to talk about what's the tone? What's the tone of Daniel's life? What what sort of life did he live in this type of high pressure environment? And not just as some means as a desperate attempt to hold his identity intact, but but actually to thrive, to, to live as the way God intended him to live. But to set up that tone, I need to connect a couple dots for you because it really helps. So uh, that's two turns. One is just jump over to Daniel chapter nine. 
I want to connect a dot starting there, and then that'll take us right back to Jeremiah chapter 29. So in Daniel chapter 9, it's just in the year of Darius. So we're talking 70 to 80 years later now. The Persians have come in and taken over Babylon, and Daniel has found himself not under King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, but now under Darius, king of Persia. So the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a maid by birth, who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books, according to the word of the Lord, to the prophet Jeremiah, that the number of years of the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So I turned my attention to the Lord God and began to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So 70 years now in Babylon having never known what it's like to live in a culture that is his own, to live from a place of cultural influence and power, Daniel looks back and he says, here's how I did it. I listened to what Jeremiah had to say. And he references the scriptures of the prophet Jeremiah, where he picks up on this being 70 years. Now, there's more to say all of this, but for time's sake, do we have something from Jeremiah that addresses Daniel and his friends? Turns out we do. Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29 is this really key chapter where Jeremiah prophesies that the exile is only going to last 70 years. That's that's verse 10. Um, But if you start at verse one, he says this. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining exiled elders and priests to the prophets and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Do you know who was in that group of people deported from Jerusalem to Babylon? Daniel and all his friends. So this is what Jeremiah writes to them. Verse 2, this was after King Jeconiah, and that's again maybe the same reference of the king mentioned in Daniel chapter 1. The queen mother of the court's officials, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metalsmiths had left Jerusalem. He sent the letter with Elisha, the son of Sephanim, Gemariah, the son of Helkalal, and Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and the letter stated... So I think all of that to say, there's some clear ties in to this being the letter Daniel references in Daniel chapter 9. Then he says this, and this is my, one of my favorite parts. I know everyone loves Jeremiah 29, 11. It's great. I love verse 4. Verse 4 through 7. Here's Jeremiah's letter. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city that I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For when it thrives, you will thrive. And therein lies the key. If we were to ask, what is the tone of Daniel's life in exile? What is the markers of who he was and what he did? I think he says it's the scriptures that Jeremiah wrote to us. It's this letter right here, meaning that what Daniel does is build homes, plant gardens, establish generational families, pursue the well-being. Now, that word well-being in the Hebrew is actually the Hebrew word shalom, which you've probably heard before. It's the Hebrew word for peace. So what what, uh, Jeremiah is saying is bring God's blessing of peace to Babylon. It's a really interesting concept. You you may not know this, but uh, the name, the name of the city, Jerusalem, Jeru is the Hebrew word for city. 
Shalom, or Shalom, peace. Jerusalem, the city of peace. It seems like what God is telling Daniel through the prophet Jeremiah is what was supposed to be the namesake of Jerusalem? Take that and bring it to Babylon. Carry it with you. Bring the peace of God to the pagan people and pray to the Lord for its behalf. Because for God, the means of his people thriving, as much as it feels counterintuitive to us, is actually not through worldly means of influence and power. So where Christianity seems to be moving from majority to minority in the West, so what feels like we're being pushed from a position of power to the position of fringes, if it feels like we're moving from being well-respected to disrespected, God looks at that and says, I didn't need any of that anyways. I can take care of this. God doesn't need those things to radically change a pagan world. And he doesn't need any of those things to radically change Portales, New Mexico. Because for God, and here's the point of today. Exile is not hindrance. God does not need our power or our influence or our strategy. He is not threatened by the shift in our current cultural moment. He simply asks us to trust in him and only him, especially in a world and culture that doesn't, to come to grips with living for him in a world that doesn't, whatever that costs us. And then to trust that he's able to do something bigger than any of us ever thought possible. Because here's the thing. Historically speaking, exile are where followers of Jesus have been at their best. When the ability to be a mere cultural Christian is just shed off, and the only thing remaining is a faithful remnant who buckle in and actually get serious about what they believe. Not serious about some form of retaliation or antagonizing approach to those who think differently, but serious about planting gardens and building houses, finding wives and starting families, pursuing the well-being of the city and praying for it. Over the next few weeks, we'll get into more practical stuff as we talk through the first few chapters of Daniel. But for today, I've been trying to see if I can piece together some simple way of putting everything that I'm trying to to say. And I know this sounds so superficial. I, I understand that. But I think it gets the point across. And here's what, if I think I could boil it all down, here's what I would say. Living as exiles means embracing being weird. I don't know how else to say it. Just embrace being weird. That's what God is inviting Daniel to. And I think it's what he's inviting us to. Haley and I were talking about this the other day. As we're looking at raising this son in Portales and wherever he's raised, looking at him and thinking, He doesn't stand a chance. He's going to be weird. I'm sorry, Griffin, if you can hear me in this room, you're going to grow up and be weird. It's just how we live. And that's okay. Because he's going to grow up being taught a different worldview than what probably a lot of his friends are going to have. And he's going to grow up without watching a lot of the shows that some of his friends and movies that some of his friends are going to watch. And he's going to grow up with us keeping a pretty heavy monitor on what he sees and interacts with online. And that's not about sheltering him so that he never encounters those things. We know he's going to encounter those things. It's about setting the terms and how we approach it with him. Because what he probably doesn't know yet, in fact, I know he doesn't know yet, is he's going to grow up in exile. And we are not going to let the world out-disciple our child. 
But we just as much have to come to grips with that same reality. Because the likeliness is for you, living in exile is going to mean embracing the reality of being the weird one. Being the weird one at work or being the weird one at school. But, but here's the thing. I don't, I don't know if you know this. Dude, our entire faith is weird. It's really weird. Do you understand that the very foundation of why we're here today is that we believe 2,000 years ago, a man who was both fully God and fully man was brutally murdered on a cross and then rose from the dead three days later. That's not a common thing to believe. Most everyone in here is aware that people don't just come back from the dead once they've died. And it is the foundation of our belief. That a guy came back from the dead as the first fruits of what's going to come for anyone who would believe in him. And we are devoted to following him as both our savior and our teacher as relayed to us through an ancient text. Guys, that's weird. Let it be weird. And you know what? It might limit how high up you can climb on the social ladder. And it might have some hard repercussions amidst an up-and-coming generation who sees it not only as weird, but perhaps as dangerous. But that's okay. Because that's a dinky price to pay for the joy of life with Jesus of Nazareth. And it's far less of a price than what many of our brothers and sisters are paying across the globe. So maybe you're watching things unfold here locally and maybe at large, and your tendency is to want to start wringing your hands in worry. What is the world coming to? I never thought I would see the day when insert whatever taboo subject you want to insert is normal. I can't believe these are the things we're having to talk about and deal with in little old Portales, New Mexico. And while I'm not saying sit back, don't do anything about it, I am saying take a deep breath, build houses, plant gardens, start families. Pursue the well-being of Portalis and pray for its behalf. Because for God, exile, be it the full-fledged hard power of conquering nation of Babylon or the long drawn out eroding power of media and influence in the West. Exile is not hindrance. Because whatever future is in store for my son and his generation, I promise you this, God is very aware of it. And he's fully prepared for it. So let's live that way. Maybe this morning you just need to be reminded of that. That this battle we're fighting, it's not against flesh and blood, as Paul says. It's against spirits and principalities and ideas. And we fight that not with sword or gun or weapon. We fight it through prayer on our knees. To remember that the early church radically changes the Roman Empire without ever picking up a sword. But from doing it from the inside out by being the changing agent in the minority. And to start embracing what it means to live that life today for you. Maybe it just means saying, you know what? I'm coming to grips with it. I'm the weird one. So when someone asks me today, oh, what did you do? I'll say I went to church and I really won't even feel all that bad about it. I don't know if you guys ever feel that way. I, one of my least favorite questions is when I'm on a plane and someone's like, what do you do for a living? And I don't want to tell you I'm a pastor. And you're just either going to shut up or you're like shut off or you're going to ask me a bunch of questions that are like to just start embracing it. We're weird. Welcome to First Baptist. I don't know what to tell you. But we actually believe that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was murdered and killed on a cross for the forgiveness of sins. And three days later, his heart started beating again. That he came back to life. 
And with that, he set the precedent that our hope and our faith goes to him so that regardless of what the world tells us what we should believe or what they think, we actually don't care because we follow a risen Savior that's far bigger than any of us. And we can do that without being antagonistic or mean or rude or hateful or any of that. But we can do it through love and resilience as we stand on what our Savior says to be true. So maybe for you today, it's just saying, God, help me embrace being weird. Make it your prayer. That's fine. Maybe you've never embraced this and just, you're thinking, that sounds crazy, but I got to find something worth living for because the life I'm living is actually not there. And I invite you to come talk to me. I'd love to tell you what it means to actually deny yourself and follow this Savior because I'm telling you, as counterintuitive as it feels, it's actually dying to self where true life is found. And then to go and be the church that does this in this town to build houses and plant gardens, to start families and pray for the well-being of Portalis because when Portalis thrives, we thrive. Father God, thank you for who you are and what you do. And God, I pray that as we think through the complexities of modern day America and what it means to be a part of this movement called Christianity, this movement that you started, that when it seems like things are spiraling, we would just remind ourselves of what it means. You have never needed influence or power or resources to radically change the world. But God, you did it as a Jewish peasant from Nazareth. You did it through an early church consisting of nobodies, of uneducated men according to Acts. God, you sure don't need our power to do it again today. But God, let us just instead in faith submit ourselves to you and trust that you are the one that can bring change in radical ways to a world that's so desperately needed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.